Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, so that you may be able to withstand on that evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. And now, Battle Ready with Father Dan Rehill. Good day. Welcome to Battle Ready. Let's pray in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. My Lord Jesus Christ, you've made this journey to the cross to die for me with unspeakable love, and I have so many times ungratefully abandoned you. But now I love you with all my heart, and because I love you, I am sincerely sorry for ever having offended you. Pardon me, my God, and permit me to accompany you on this journey. You go to die for love of me. I want my beloved Redeemer to die for love of you. My Jesus, I will live and die, always united to you. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. If you've uh, done the Stations of the Cross, you know that's the opening prayer. Today, many churches will begin uh, the Stations of Cross publicly in community, uh, usually in the evening. We'll be having ours here at 5.30 p.m. And there's a uh, plenary indulgence attached, I believe, to saying the stations during Lent, if you walk the stations in the church. If you sit in the pew, it's a partial indulgence. So he walked the actual way of the cross, which was uh, quite a long distance with a cross on his back. If you're physically able, uh, get up and walk through the church with the priest to get somebody out of purgatory with the plenary indulgence. Uh, we're going to talk about stations a little bit later, and we're also going to get to uh, Venerable Mary of Agrida. Today, pray for a Polish woman named Dominika Clark. Dominika had uh, two sets of twins, so two sets of twins, uh, a mother of seven. So with the two sets of twins, she had three other children, seven children in total. She was expecting her eighth but she delivered quintuplets instead, four babies. So now she has 11 kids. She went from seven to 11 overnight. Uh, and she calls it a miracle. Uh, and so pray for her. She's gonna, that's going to be a little bit difficult for a little while, trying to take care of four quintuplets who are newborns, uh, and also for the babies who are in the NICU. So keep her in your prayers. Let's see, today, I'm going to start doing this on a daily basis for Lent. Since many people probably didn't get the Magnificat Lenten Companion, I'm going to give you the little meditation for the day. Today's meditation was written to us by Father Donald Haggerty. It's entitled, Sacrifice for Greater Love. He says, when I was a boy, my father belonged to the parish uh, Nocturnal Adoration Society. Once a month on the weekend, he would arise in the middle of the night, drive to the church, and take his solitary hour in prayer before the Blessed Sacrament exposed on the altar. He was accustomed to call this practice his Saturday night fast. Those nocturnal pilgrimages cost him, surely, especially on cold winter nights, but they also blessed him and his family in untold ways. At his funeral mass, I remembered this with gratitude. The comment by Jesus that they will fast when the bridegroom is taken away from them is much more a statement about love than an exhortation to penance. It is love that provokes sacrificial impulses with their proper motive. When sacrifices are done out of love, they inevitably draw us closer to our Lord in our prayer. Fasting, in a sense, can involve many forms of self-denial, 
besides simply giving up food, fasting from unnecessary internet use, or uh, fasting in a way to pray more is an example. When we sense that our Lord is somehow not as close as before, perhaps because we have distanced ourselves from him, then it is time to find him again. Acts of mortification, like my father's monthly Saturday night fast, when done with love, will always inflame a deeper longing for Jesus. The prayer is, Father of mercy, may we have the grace to seek a fervent Lent of sacrifice and prayer, and so come to know your love in a greater depth of spirit. And today's suggested penance is to skip a meal or part of one. Okay, we'll pick that up on Monday. Uh, okay, so Stations of the Cross, how did they come about? Do you have any idea? Uh, also known <clears throat> as the Way of the Cross or the Sorrowful Way, um, they actually originated in uh, Jerusalem. So uh, what happened was the Blessed Mother, after Jesus ascended to heaven, would frequently uh, go back to the site of the path of the uh, carrying of the cross, and she would revisit uh, those scenes of the Lord's Passion. Then after Constantine had legalized Christianity in the year 313, uh, this pathway was marked with its important stations. So it was literally configured with uh, uh, placard, plaques letting people know where each of these things occurred. And so then many, many, many people would come to the Holy Land uh, each year to walk this way of the cross as uh, pilgrims from all over the Europe countries would come. Uh, and they'd visit these holy places and follow this way of the cross. Um, but it was only done in the Holy Land. So this devotion grew in such popularity. And finally, by the fifth century, an interest developed in the church to reproduce the holy places in other areas so pilgrims wouldn't have to actually travel to the Holy Land to make this spiritual devotional way. Instead, they could do it in their hearts. Uh, so uh, St. Petronius, who was the Bishop of Bologna, he constructed a group of chapels at the monastery of San Stefano, which depicted these important shrines of the Holy Land, including several of the stations. And this inspired the building of the Franciscan Monastery in Washington, where uh, one can visit and see reproductions of the Bethlehem Chapel, the Tomb of the Lord, and other important shrines of the Holy Land. But really, in the year 1342, the Franciscans uh, were appointed as guardians of the shrines of the Holy Land. And the faithful re began to receive indulgences for praying at the following stations, at Pilate's house, where Christ met his mother, where he spoke to the women, where he met Simon of Cyrene, uh, where he was stripped of his garments, where he was nailed to the cross, and then at the tomb. So there was a man there named William Way. He was an English pilgrim, and he visited the Holy Land in 1458 and again in 1462. And he's the one that was credited with calling these places stations. So an Englishman gets the credit for calling them stations. And he described the manner in which uh, a pilgrim followed the steps of Christ um, with kind of a great detail. Prior to this time, the path 
was followed in the reverse course of today. So you would start at Calvary and go backwards. But Mr. Way thought that was somewhat um, off-putting to himself. So he reversed the order and started at Pilate's house and then made his way all the way to Calvary. And that's what stuck. Um, we just like things to go in consequential order. Now, what happened was the Muslims uh, blocked access to the Holy Land, and this really fueled having reproductions of the stations uh, built and erected um, by the Dominican friary and the poor Clare convent in Messina. And uh, further advancements took place in Nuremberg, Louvain, Bamberg, Freiburg, Rhodes, and Antwerp because the people couldn't get to the Holy Land. So they started making stations all over Europe. And uh, in 1587, when uh, the Muslims forbade anyone to make any halt nor pay any veneration to the stations with uncovered head nor make any other demonstration, basically they suppressed any devotion in the Holy Land. So the devotion grew like wildfire throughout all of Europe because the people couldn't get to the Holy Land. But again, at this time, the stations weren't set in number. So Mr. Way's account has 14 stations, but only five correspond to our own. So some versions included the house of uh, uh, Divies, which was the rich man in the Lazarus story, uh, the city gate, which Christ passed through, uh, the houses of Herod and Simon the Pharisee, and then in 1584, a book was written entitled Jerusalem, Secut Christi Tempore Fluriet, and that gave 12 stations which match those in our present version. And this book got translated into several languages and circulated widely around Europe. In the 16th century, century devotional books appeared, and uh, they had 14 stations in them. And by the end of the 17th century, the erection of stations and churches became the most popular. And in 1686, Pope Innocent XI, realizing that very few people had the ability to travel to the Holy Land due to the Muslim oppression, uh, granted the Franciscans the right to erect stations in all their churches and that the same indulgences would be given to the faithful for practicing the devotion as if they actually made the pilgrimage to the Holy Land. So we thank Pope Innocent XI for extending the plenary indulgence around the whole world. Now, Pope Benedict XIII, he extended these indulgences uh, to all the faithful in 1726. And five years later, Clement XII permitted stations to be erected in all churches and fixed the number at 14, not just Franciscan churches. And in 1742, Pope Benedict XIV exhorted priests to enrich their churches with the way of the cross, which had to include the 14 crosses and are usually accompanied with pictures or images of each particular station. And that pretty much puts us to where we are today. Uh, and that's the history and the etymology of the Stations of the Cross. It all started with Our Lady, um, as did our, uh, our redemption. It all began with her. So... Uh, if you have the ability to get to a church tonight or today to pray the stations, it's a very good thing to do. And um, again, you can get a soul out of purgatory. Okay, something I wanted to, there's many stations of the cross, many um, 
texts to follow. I mean, there's probably, I would say, probably 50 different books that have the Stations of the Cross, of various, uh, written by various saints. The one we use here typically is Alphonsus Liguori. I love his. But there's also a, a wonderful one that is written, um, Mary's Way of the Cross. I'm just going to give you the first station of how it goes. So when Jesus is condemned to die, it's, this is the text. It was early Friday morning when I saw my son. That was the first glimpse I had of him since they took him away. His bruised and bleeding skin sent a sort of pain deep into my heart and tears down my cheeks. Then Pilate, from his chair of judgment, asked the crowd why they wanted my son executed. All around me they shouted, crucify him. I wanted to plead with them, stop, but I knew this had to be. So I stood by and cried silently. Ooh, I tell you, I've done this uh, particular group of stations. It's very powerful because you're you're he seeing the whole thing through the eyes of Jesus's mother. So um, you can order books that have this version on uh, everywhere, really. I think even Amazon has them. It's Mary's Way of the Cross. Powerful, powerful, powerful. Okay, so I wanted to turn our attention to you, uh, not to you, but uh, give attention to Venerable Mary Agrita uh, to you about this woman who's, I think, one of the more unknown mystics of the church. She's not like uh, Faustina or uh, St. Catherine, uh, but she she's uh, she has got such prolific writings particularly about Our Lady. So, um, you know, the saints really make the best stories. And not just with their own lives, but they also what they ha can teach us about God and about the Blessed Virgin Mary. And uh, this saint in the making, she's a venerable, so she's not canonized yet. Uh, her name is uh, Mary of Agrita. She's also known as Mary of Jesus of Agrita and the Lady in Blue for the blue cloak that she wore. Uh, she also uh, was the writer of uh, an incredibly beautiful religious book, uh, which I'll, I'll get to in a little bit. When was she born? She was born in 1602 in Agrita, Spain, and her parents were very rich, noble parents. She was one of 11 children, and as she grew, she showed signs of particular and special graces. She attained a very high degree of prayer and she bore a painful illness with incredible patience. So her parents knew she was different. And at the age of 17, she entered the Franciscan convent of the Poor Clares of the Immaculate Conception in Agrita as a novice, along with her mother and last surviving sister. So that's kind of an unusual thing right there. And her father took the habit as well uh, at the Order of St. Francis, where her two surviving brothers were already religious. So basically, the whole anybody who lived through the uh, plagues and the problems of life in the, in the 1600s, and this family became a religious. Very unusual family. So uh, Mary went on to become Sister Mary of Jesus, and uh, her very holy life, her very cheerful surrender to God, and her very deep humility and kindness endeared her to just about everybody. So much so that she became the abbess of the convent at 25 years old. Unheard of. Unheard of. And uh, her humility 
and enlightenment from the Holy Spirit of her own nothingness compared to God um, meant she had a preference for doing the most lowly and menial tasks. And this also is something that's pretty extraordinary in um, an abbess or an abbot. Even the most holy abbesses and abbots, they take their role as the abbot or abbess um, as the one who is in charge of the convent, which they are. They are. So you often don't see them doing the very menial tasks because they have other things they have to do that nobody else can do. That makes sense, right? But this woman, because she really, uh, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, saw herself as the very me most meek and lowly, um, she would abstain from eating uh, milk, meat, and cheese. She would sleep for only a couple of hours a night, and she slept on a board and spent the rest of the night in prayer and in her devotions. Uh, she prayed the way of the cross, which we just went through, every night, carrying a heavy cross of her own. She was uh, ch cheerfully obedient to her superiors before she became the abbess, uh, no matter how disagreeable they were. And she was graced with so much wisdom that uh, prelates, bishops, and even the king of Spain sought her advice. Whenever she spoke of God, she would inflame those around her with the love of God. So she had graces not only working within her, but the people around her would be affected by the power of the graces that flowed out of her. She experienced um, many of what the church calls ecstasies when uh, a saint will be drawn into um, a miraculous kind of conversation with God. And in one of them, she was shown the entire earth and the number, the small number of souls who knew God and the vast number who did not. And of those who did not belong to the Catholic Church, um, God revealed the people of New Mexico and its surrounding areas were most inclined to his mercy. Her ardent desire, prayers and sacrifices for their conversion resulted in her grace to bilocate. Uh, fascinating. People of New Mexico. I'm just thinking, you know, in 1600. Hmm. I wonder if they're talking about if that's maybe there was a New Mexico in Spain. I'd have to look that up. All right. So between the the, the decade of 20, 1621 to 1631, when she was aged 19 to 29, she bilocated over 500 times. And this would just happen while she was praying. Her body remained in the cloistered convent, but at the same time, she would find herself in the continent of North America, in an area of land stretching from East Texas, New Mexico, and Western Arizona. Now, this is before America was America, by the way. And she appeared to the Germano Indians and other tribes by flying through the sky and proceeded to teach them about the Catholic faith. Well, let me tell you about my little school here, Three Hearts Academy. If we had a nun that could fly through the sky while teaching the faith, I think the whole state of Tennessee would be enrolled in this school. That's quite a gift. Um, but, you know, there's always naysayers and there's people that would call her a witch. And so this resulted in many occasions of being tortured and left for dead. But she would return to her body in Spain unharmed. Uh, the poor woman. Later, she would reappear to the same Indians who were completely dumbfounded as to how she was still alive. This this is a fascinating uh person. So when she uh, became Mother Mary of Agrita, 
she detailed all that had happened to her confessor, the places she went to, the Indians she'd seen, and all she experienced in teaching them about God. And her confessor informed the Superior General of the Franciscan Order, who um, had him send a letter to the Archbishop of Mexico City. And in May of 1628, the suitably impressed Archbishop sent a letter of inquiry to Father Fray Alanio de Benvenides, his superior of the Franciscan missions in New Mexico, what is now an American state, but at the time belonged to Spain. Uh, without giving details, the Archbishop wanted an investigation into whether any Indians knew about the Holy Catholic faith before the arrival of missionaries and how it occurred. This is how you get the proof in the pudding. So following the arrival of his letter, 50 Jumano Indians walked over 500 miles and presented themselves to the Franciscan missionary where Father Benevenides was located. And the Indians asked for priests to be present among them and they had, uh, as they had been instructed by the lady in blue and all wished to be baptized. When the two Franciscan priests arrived with their military escort, they were met by the whole Jumano tribe in procession behind a large wooden cross decorated with flowers. Each person asked to be baptized. Mothers asked for their infants. The priest catechized and baptized everyone. And while this was happening, representatives from other tribes appeared asking for baptism for their tribes as well. And they too had been instructed by the lady in blue, though no one knew who she was. A total of 10,000 baptisms took place. Can you imagine? My goodness, we need saints like this today. We need saints like this today. Lord, I'm asking you to send somebody like this to St. Catherine's. Okay, so when the priests returned, they reported everything to Father Benavides, who wrote a lengthy report for church officials and the King of Spain. And the report uh, was sent to the Archbishop of Mexico City uh, before going to Spain. He visited the Superior General of the Franciscans, who told him the identity of the Lady in Blue. And then in 1631, Father Benavides traveled to meet Sister Mary of Agrita and interviewed the humble nun. Under obedience, she told him all that she'd experienced, and she accurately described the appearance and face of the priests who had been part of the baptisms. Father Benavides found her to be of such great virtue and wrote to Pope Urban VIII, to King Philip IV of Spain and the Franciscans back in the New World. So they all came to believe that this is actually uh, the truth of what happened, that she bilocated and taught these people about the faith. Uh, there's much more to speak about this woman, as you can tell from the, just the early days of her life. This is an extraordinary saint. But I want you to read from her actual writings. And because we were talking about the stations today, I'm going to take you to um, volume three of the Transfiction. And in this, we have a chapter uh, about how our Savior Jesus was crucified on Calvary. In particular, I'm going to read you the part about Our Lady. So Jesus is taken to the cross. Uh, the sorrowful and afflicted mother in the bitterness of her soul, also arrived at the summit of the mount and remained very close to her divine son. But in the sorrows of her soul, as it was, she was beside herself, being entirely transformed by her love and by the pains which she saw Jesus suffer. Near her were St. John 
and the three Marys, for they alone, through their her intercession and the favor of the Eternal Father, had obtained the privilege of remaining so constantly near to the Savior and to his cross. When the most prudent mother perceived that now the mysteries of the redemption were to be fulfilled, and that the executioners were about to strip Jesus of his clothes for crucifixion, she turned in spirit to the Eternal Father and prayed as follows, My Lord and Eternal God, Thou art the Father of Thy only begotten Son. By eternal generation He is engendered, God of the true God, namely Thyself, and as man he was born of my womb and received from me this human nature in which he now suffers. I have nursed and sustained him at my own breast and as the best of sons that ever can be born of any creature I love him with maternal love. As his mother I have a natural right in the person of his most holy humanity and thy providence will never infringe upon any rights held by thy creatures. This right of a mother, then, I now yield to thee, and once more place in thy hands thy and my son as a sacrifice for the redemption of man. Accept, my Lord, this pleasing offering, since this is more than I can ever offer by submitting my own self as a victim or to suffering. This sacrifice is greater not only because my son is the true God and of thine own substance, but because this sacrifice costs me a much greater sorrow and pain for it is the lots for if the lots were changed and I should be permitted to die in order to preserve his most holy life I would consider it a great relief and the fulfillment of my dearest wishes the eternal father received this prayer of the exalted queen with ineffable pleasure and complacency the patriarch Abraham was permitted to go no further than to prefigure and attempt the sacrifice of a son because the real execution of such a sacrifice God reserved to himself and to his only begotten so these books give you insight into what was going on in the mind of Our Lady during during his whole life, but particularly during his passion. Um, if you don't have them and you can afford to get them, it's a wonderful addition to your library. That's all we have for today. Have a blessed weekend. May Almighty God bless you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. This is Father Dan signing off. Mm -hmm.